With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash acquire. That's linkedin.com slash acquire. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us. This is a personal finance show on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein. Today is episode 268. It's titled... How to Manage Risk. I'm in New York and New Jersey for a few days. I flew in the JFK, rented a car to visit my sister, dropped the car back at JFK because Avis wanted $700 to drop the car off in Midtown Manhattan. After I dropped off the car, I took the AirTran to the Howard Beach Station. The price to take the AirTran and then connect to the subway into the city is $5. I got to the spot. There wasn't anybody manning the booth. The machines to pay the $5 had a line eight people deep. There were three machines. There were 25 or 30 people waiting to pay to buy a ticket. A man approached me and says, I know you don't want to wait in that line. Here's an AirTran card that I'll let you use. I was a little wary. He said, How much do you want? $5. I jumped at the chance. He could have charged me 10 and I would have gladly paid. Because in my mind, I was saving $700 not dropping off the car in Manhattan. And he was right. I didn't want to wait in that line. My concern was that by doing so, I would miss the train, that I wouldn't know how long the line would be The subway would come or the train would come and I would miss it. This was a good deal for him. He knew there was his bottleneck. He could buy a 10-trip AirTran card for only $26. That means he was making $250 each time someone used the card. The downside, after each fourth swipe, he has to wait 18 minutes before the card can be used again. This is an example of weighing risk. Making Decisions Under Uncertainty. I recently finished a book that I very much enjoyed. It's by the economist Alison Schrager, and it's called An Economist Walks Into a Brothel. One of her points is goods that lessen risk tend to cost more. This gentleman could have charged me more because I wanted to reduce my risk of missing the train and having the inconvenience of waiting a long time in line. I would have been willing to pay more than $5 to reduce that risk. Schrager points out that basic economy plane tickets are cheaper than regular fare tickets because you're more likely to get bumped with a basic economy ticket. You also don't get to choose your seat. If you want to reduce the risk of having a middle seat, or getting bumped, you're willing to pay more to lessen those risks. She points out, though, that's not always the case. She writes, some markets do not reward risk in a sensible way, usually because something interferes with its proper functioning. For example, information is scarce, 
risk is hard to measure, or something limits competition among buyers or sellers of risk. We had an example of that last week when I was talking about the gig economy and DoorDash. I got a lot of emails on that episode, and I wasn't proposing that those prices that DoorDash charges should be regulated. My biggest concern was the insurance risk. The observation that these gig economy workers don't realize, either through a lack of information or lack of research on their part, that they're taking a huge insurance risk. And that insurance risk isn't factoring in to either what they're willing to take on these deliveries or what DoorDash is charging so that the workers can cover their insurance costs. Because right now, many of these drivers are uninsured on their way to the restaurant to pick up the food. Once they pick up the food, then DoorDash's insurance kicks in. So this is really a risk being borne by society that isn't priced in to either what DoorDash charges or what workers accept. And the risk itself is being borne by whoever happens to get hit by a DoorDash driver. And then they find out that that particular driver is uninsured, that the driver's insurance company will not pay because they consider it a commercial enterprise. When it comes to risk, then, there's a lot of variables. And what I loved about Schrager's book is she does a great job identifying how to manage risk. She outlines a three-step process for assessing and managing risk. The first step in assessing and managing risk is to define the ultimate goal. What is it that you want? Schrager points out we often take risk because we want change without defining what it is we're truly after. An example would be quitting a job in frustration because we have this sense that we want more freedom, but we haven't really thought things through. She writes, taking a risk without a goal is just like getting in a car and driving around aimlessly expecting to wind up in a great place. You might land somewhere wonderful, but odds are you'll end up somewhere you don't want to be. It sounds simple, she writes, but knowing what you want might be the hardest part of risk management. Once we've identified what it is we want, the second step is to figure out how can we achieve the goal with no risk at all, or as little risk as possible. In other words, what would guarantee you would accomplish your goal, she writes. And then the third, she says, is that no risk option possible? or desirable? If not, how much risk do you need to take to get what you want? Here's an example. My sister and I are both selling our houses. Ours is our house in Idaho. Hers is one in New Jersey. So we're both marketing our houses at the same time, and we both get an offer on our house. And she texts me, and I called her because this is not a conversation to have over text, what should she do about this offer? Should she take it or counteroffer? Her goal is different than mine. My goal is to get moved and not have to deal with the hassle of keeping a house that's unoccupied over the winter. Her goal, yes, she wants to move, but she has a certain price in her mind, what she believes her house is worth. Our risk-free options are different. 
Mine is, is to take the first offer that seems reasonable and likely to close, even though it might not be what I'm asking. That's exactly what I did. We took $25,000 or $20,000 below our asking price because they were putting up a large amount of cash and I had confidence that this would close and then I wouldn't have to deal with the house all winter. She got an offer that was below what she was asking. And in her case, her risk-free option was to actually counteroffer, to try to get some additional money because that was what her ultimate goal is. So the risk-free option can differ depending on what it is you want. Now, this risk-free option in finance is called the risk-free asset, and it offers predictability. The classic risk-free asset are U.S. Treasury bills or money market accounts, essentially cash. It pays very low interest. But nothing is entirely risk-free. With a money market account or T-bills, there's the risk of inflation that your purchasing power will be lost over time. With T-bills, there's the risk that Congress could choose to default on Treasury bills. So those are the three steps. Figure out what your ultimate goal is. Decide if there's a risk-free way to achieve that goal. And if there isn't a risk-free way, figure out how much risk you need to take to get what you want. Here's another example of applying this risk management process. Last week, I was on the podcast Simple Money Wins with Anthony Park. He's the host. I was the guest. We were recording the episode. We were going through examples applying the 10 questions in my investment framework that I discussed in my upcoming book, Money for the Rest of Us, 10 Questions to Master Successful Investing. He brought up the example of the 90-10 portfolio that Warren Buffett instructed the trustee to use for his wife, Astrid Menx, when Buffett eventually passes away. In the 2013 annual letter for Berkshire Hathaway, Buffett wrote, My advice to the trustee could not be more simple. Put 10% of the cash in short-term government bonds and 90% in a very low-cost S&P 500 index fund. I suggest Vanguard's. Is that an appropriate allocation for a retiree? Well, it depends. Step one, what is the ultimate goal? In this case, and I think in the case of most retirees, is to have enough money to live on and not run out of money. What we don't know is how large is this trust and what are the living expenses? Will the trust generate enough income if the stock market falls 60% to allow Astrid Menx to continue to live? That's important. What is the risk-free asset here? When you're considering how to invest your retirement assets, what are we trying to accomplish? We want high predictability of not running out of money and having enough to live on. If you have only $500,000 in your retirement fund, a 90-10 portfolio, that's not risk-free. The risk-free is something that's highly predictable. And an asset class that can fall 60% is not highly predictable. Nor is putting it all in T-bills. Flipping it, do 90% T-bills and 10% in stocks. 
that's not risk-free either because of inflation, it becomes very difficult to not run out of money in your retirement. The risk-free asset is an immediate annuity, something that provides guaranteed lifetime income. That's the risk-free choice. Now, it's not completely risk-free because the annuity company could go bankrupt and then you'd have to rely on the state insurance pool if you're in the U.S. to cover that. But it is more predictable. Now, there's a cost of that. You have to pay a premium. One of our PLUS members is deciding whether to buy additional credits from the Nevada State Pension. She just retired, and she has the opportunity to pay $86,000 to receive an additional $550 per month for the rest of her life. Her life expectancy at age 60 is about 24.6 years. She's trying to decide, should she take this risk? Next week, we're going to talk about pension plans, state pension plans, particularly the risk of state pension plans as interest rates have fallen. So I don't know about Nevada at this point, but just analyzing this particular annuity stream, $550 per month for the next 25 years, if you paid $86,000 for that, the eternal rate of return is about 5.8%. In other words, that's the discount rate that it takes to put that future income stream in today's dollars so it's worth $86,000. Another way of saying that is that's the rate of return priced in. If you wanted to invest $86,000 and withdraw $550 per month, for the next 25 years, you'd have to earn 5.8%. The beauty of an immediate annuity is if she lives longer than 25 years, that she still gets the $550 a month. That's a pretty good deal if we're comfortable with the risk of the Nevada pension system, the viability, which we'll talk about next week. I actually priced out on immediateannuity.com what they're saying you could get for $86,000 if you're 60 and female with no survivor benefits. They're saying $394 per month. When it comes to retirement, then the goal is to have enough money to live on for the rest of our lives. And the Easiest way to do that is with an immediate annuity. Now, not necessarily all your assets, but it's a way to essentially structure a private pension. Now, if you actually have a pension, then maybe you don't need to have an immediate annuity. Before we look at two types of risk we should be aware of, let me pause and share some words from this week's sponsors. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and for free. I know in our business, having the right candidates for the job is critical to keep our business running smoothly. Now, LinkedIn isn't just another job board. LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. It gives you access to professionals you can't find anywhere else. LinkedIn does all that while making the process easy and intuitive. Hiring is easy when you have that many quality candidates. 
So easy, in fact, that 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. LinkedIn is constantly finding ways to make the process easier. They even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process even easier and quicker. So post your job for free at linkedin.com slash David. That's linkedin.com slash David to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Sometimes it's just nice to sit back, relax, maybe even take a nap. That's not what you want your money to be doing. You want it to be working hard for you, earning interest, generating returns. That's where the Betterment Automated Investing and Savings app can help. Betterment's technology gives you advanced tools that are built to help you maximize returns. They have diversified portfolios of low-cost ETFs that have been constructed by experts. High-yield cash accounts, where your money can earn 11 times the national average and automated investing technology like automated rebalancing. These tools can help you reach your savings and investing goals. Betterment is a fiduciary. That means it's their job to act in your best interest. They will never recommend an investment or give you guidance unless they believe it will help you reach your financial goals. So visit Betterment.com to get started. Learn more about the high-yield cash accounts at Betterment.com. Investing involves risk, performance not guaranteed, Cash reserves offered through Betterment LLC and Betterment Securities. Betterment is not a bank. Schringer points out two types of risk. One is idiosyncratic risk, and that's risks that are unique to a particular asset. It could be specific company actions that impact one stock. So what Uber's management does or Facebook's management. It could be the poor relationship that someone might have with their boss that puts their employment in peril. It's very specific to that situation or that asset. We contrast that with systemic risk. Systemic risk affects a larger system rather than an individual asset or situation. An example of systemic risk is how an economic recession leads to a drop in corporate earnings and can negatively impact the entire stock market, or how a recession leads to layoffs in an entire industry, putting an individual's job at risk. We can reduce idiosyncratic risk or asset-specific risk through diversification. An exchange-traded fund or index fund owns hundreds or thousands of stocks. And because of that, you're not exposed to the actions of management of one particular company that perhaps undermines that company's stock. But it's much more difficult to reduce systemic risk. If you're invested 90% in the stock market and have only 10% in T-bills like Buffett was recommending, then that has systemic risk as it relates to the stock market. Now, we try to reduce that systemic risk in having multiple asset categories in our portfolios, assets that have different return drivers. So hopefully they act differently under different economic regimes. Another interesting topic that she addresses, and one reason I like this book is I've read books on risk. I've studied risk in undergraduate school in graduate school, I manage risk as an investment portfolio manager, but she has also spent several decades studying risk. 
and does a very good job of outlining how to manage risk. And so in some extent, it was a review, but it was also very helpful just to see the words she used to describe risk and managing risk. She talked about hedging. She writes, in finance, hedging means de-risking or taking less risk. It involves giving up your potential gains if things go well in exchange for reducing the odds of things going wrong. Overall, de-risking increases the odds of you getting what you want, but you must give up the possibility of getting more. Think of a hedge fund. Traditional hedge funds took less risk than the stock market. They were seeking to protect against capital losses from losing money. Now, they promised, some of them promised they could get returns as high as the stock market. Most fell short of that. But the idea was de-risking, taking less risk. She continues, hedging is determining how much of that risky option you want to or have to take to achieve your goal. And unlike diversification, it comes at a cost. You must give up some of your expected gains because you are taking less risk at the cost of less reward. Hedging is more precise because it takes more planning and a clear goal. It goes back to what is your ultimate goal? What is it that you want? Now, oftentimes we think about hedging in terms of financial markets, but it also applies to other areas. Seven years ago, I quit my investment firm and my partners bought me out. They were going to pay me and they did pay me over seven years. What is it that I wanted? Well, there are many things I want out. I wanted freedom to pursue other activities outside of being an investment advisor. But more than anything, I wanted security. I wanted the predictability of knowing that I had a large enough nest egg that if I wanted to retire, I could. So I hedged. I was willing to give up the potential upside of a career in investing for the security of receiving an annual payment from my investment firm. Wasn't risk-free in the sense that they could have defaulted, but I wanted the predictability and the security of that income stream that was promised to me in exchange for the potential career advancement or other opportunities in the investment business. That was a hedge. It worked out. Hedging differs from insurance. Schrager writes, insurance works like magic. It reduces your risk just like hedging does, but with one important difference. With hedging, you must take less risk. That's why it's called de-risking. You give up the extra upside of your potential reward in exchange for lessening the risk that something goes horribly wrong. If you risk less, you get less. Insurance appears to pull off the unimaginable. Downside protection with unlimited upside. Now, we can buy insurance on our stock portfolios. We can buy a put, an option. It's put protection. It protects you. You pay a premium and you're protected against the downside. But it's expensive, often costing 3 to 4% in terms of the return give up per year. Another insurance product is life insurance to protect our family in case we pass away. But we still get the upside of living our life to the fullest. We don't have to give something up 
when we insure oftentimes because all we're really paying for is the premium to protect against the downside. Now, sometimes by having insurance, we feel more confident and we actually take more risk in terms of our activities. But insurance protects. You pay a premium and you know what the cost of that premium is, but you're not necessarily giving the upside of the potential reward. Whereas when you hedge, you're taking away some of that potential upside because you're de-risking, you're getting less exposure to it, just as you have less money in the stock market by putting more in short-term bonds. And so you take less risk, you're going to get less of a return. In that same 2013 letter, Buffett describes what a sound insurance operation is like. He says there's four parts. One, you understand all exposures that might cause a policy to occur losses. Two, you conservatively assess the likelihood of any exposure actually causing a loss and the probable cost if it does. Three, you set a premium that on average will deliver a profit after both prospective loss costs and operating expenses are covered. And four, you're willing to walk away if the appropriate premium can't be obtained. When we think about the immediate annuity product that's offered by an insurance company, they need to assess what's the average life expectancy of those in the pool, what can they earn on their investments, and can they charge enough premium in order to meet those obligations of the annuity pool and still make a profit. When we insure, we shift the risk to someone else, typically an insurance company or some other entity, and they're willing to take the risk because they believe they can earn a profit on it by pricing that premium appropriately. But the risks are pooled. Not everyone is going to live to be 100. Some people will die in their first few years, and so that's how these annuities work. And those that live to be 95, their living expenses that are paid through the annuity is being partially funded by the premiums that those who died early paid. I've mentioned then that in managing risk, we first have to decide what is it that we want and then see if there's a risk-free option that allows us to get what we want at little or no cost. And if there isn't, how much risk do we have to take in order to get what we want? Trigger mentions in her book, and I don't know if she put this exactly this way, but oftentimes the risk-free asset is an option. It's the optionality, something that Nassim Nicholas Taleb wrote about in his book, Anti-Fragile. An option is the right, but not the obligation to act. Having flexibility is a great way to manage risk. He gives the example of the rational flaneur that makes a decision at every step to revise his schedule so he can imbibe based on new information. So as new information comes along, then he decides what to do. We can do that when we travel. We can buy a one-way ticket and then see what we want to do as we get to that particular country and book a hotel or an Airbnb a few days 
ahead. We did that when we traveled in Europe and Asia about five years ago. The opposite of that is to take a cruise on a ship where you don't have to worry about what's planned because everything is planned out. So it's a much more secure way, but you give up the flexibility, the optionality. Holobrite's freedom is the ultimate option. To not be locked in to a particular course, but to be able to choose what it is that you want to do. Let's look at one final example to summarize. FinCon, the financial media conference, just wrapped up. I wasn't able to attend. My son, Brett, attended on behalf of money for the rest of us. But after a conference, you're given the option to purchase a ticket for the next year. We have to decide by tomorrow whether we want to buy this lowest price ticket and be able to attend a conference that will not be held until a year from now. Step one, what is it that we want? What's the ultimate goal? If our goal is to lock in the lowest price, then the risk-free option is to purchase the early ticket. It guarantees the cheapest spot. And we still have the optionality of not to go. Now, the risk of that is we're out a portion of the fee if we decide not to attend the conference. Or our ultimate goal is to have maximum flexibility and not have to spend any money now. So we can choose not to buy the ticket. The risk-free option is just to wait and to see what happens. The potential risk is the conference or the conference hotel sells out and it costs a lot more in the future. Once you decide to go, let's say next summer, it's going to cost a lot more. Now, there's a third option that FinCon offers and it's what we did this year. I bought the ticket for the 2019 conference right after the 2018 conference and then I was unable to attend. But FinCon offers the ability to transfer the ticket. Now, it used to be free to transfer your ticket and just to sell it to somebody else. But now they sell that opportunity. They recognize that this is an option that they can permit, but they can get a premium for that option. That attendees are given the opportunity to sell their ticket, but for $50. By buying the early bird ticket at, I believe it's $200, I potentially would only be out $150 if I decide I'm unable to attend and I could pay $50. I would be willing to pay the $50 in order to hopefully recoup some of those costs. But FinCon recognized an option that they could make a premium and earn a little bit of money by reducing the risk that somebody would be out of their complete price of their early bird ticket. That ends our discussion of risk and risk management. There are many other interesting topics in the book. She discusses how traditional ways of of looking at the stock market in terms of how returns are distributed and how risk is estimated really underestimates the risk of the stock market and the probability of losses. It was a really interesting section that we didn't get to cover today. And there's many other topics that she covers. And she gives some really, really great example because she likes to study risk pricing in extreme areas. 
That's why the title of the book is An Economist Walks Into a Brothel. She talks about the economics and the risk assessment of prostitution. She talks about it in terms of financing movies, talks about paparazzis and how the risk dynamics of paparazzis works. Excellent book. That is episode 268. You can get show notes at moneyfortherestofus.com. While there, please sign up for my free insider's guide, and I'll email each week's links to you in the Wednesday email, along with an essay I do. Some of the best writing I do each week on money, investing, and the economy just goes to that email list, and you can sign up at moneyfortherestofus.com. Everything I've shared with you in this episode has been for general education. I've not considered your specific risk situation. I've not provided investment advice. This is simply general education on money, investing, and the economy. Have a great week.